Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to this edition of the Amigos Interview. I'm here today with uh, sort of Amiga compositional legend Mike Clark of Psygnosis fame. Um, I did a little bit of reading up on you, Mike. First of all, hello. Hello. <laughs> I uh, now this is all reported from the internet, so uh, this may or may not be accurate. But from what I've read, uh, you actually worked on. Uh, for Codemasters in production in, in back in the 80s. Is that true? It's not true. I imagine that that is an erroneous Moby Games credit. Okay. <laughs> I'm guessing that you are not the first, I'm not the first person to ask you about this. No, I don't know what that is. Um, <laughs> the only thing I've done for Codemasters was something through a third party developer, which was a, a, a game on the Amiga. I just did music for that. So oh. yeah, that, that was not me. There's somebody else who got a thanks to credit, but no, it's sorry. It wasn't going that long. <laughs> Okay. When I started. Okay. Okay. Well, you know, before we get into your um, your days as a uh, as a comp composer for uh, for games, uh, tell me a little bit about uh, where you grew up. I grew up on the Wirral in England, obviously, which is just over the water from Liverpool. So generally, I'll say that I'm from Liverpool, uh, and that was very good as far as games can, are concerned, because there's a very long history of uh, game development in Liverpool. There was really a one of the core places in the UK where a lot of the innovation and development happened. Um, just very in the very early 80s, there was uh, Imagine Software was one of the big ones, and they became Psygnosis, but there were lots of little smaller developers. Uh, Bug Byte Software were over here, and um, things like Manic Miner and Jet Set Willie on the Spectrum were written here, and Mike Singleton, who did Lords of Midnight and lots of other games. That, that was all done around here, so it was it was a good place to grow up with regards to video games because of the amount of people. Of course, when I was growing up, I had no idea that all of this existed and all <laughs> these people were around. Otherwise, I would have uh, possibly got a bit fanboy about it and, <laughs> and tried to find them. <laughs> was it? Um, was there anything special or anything um, that you can recall that happened in your childhood that kind of pushed you towards becoming a composer? Um. Not, not really pushed me towards uh, having a Commodore 64 and having playing so many games with uh, rather marvelous Commodore 64 music mm -hmm. was a big, big help. But nevertheless, I, I always had an affinity with music. I don't really know what it was when I was about, oh, I don't know, five years old. I, I had uh, some Disney albums like Dumbo and, and things like that. And I used to sit there with my sister's record player and I would just sit there listening to them with headphones on. And that, that's it. I'd do that for hours. Uh, and from that, I never really got into uh, creation until I had a proper outlet. I never, I never really learned to play any instruments until I, I did grade one violin at mm -hmm. primary school, and then stopped. And then I got a little keyboard one Christmas. So I, I never really had any tutoring with regards to music, but nevertheless, there was always an attachment to it. Yeah. I don't really know why, because there is nobody else in the close or extended family who has got anything to do with music whatsoever. Nobody even plays any musical instruments. Wow. <laughs> so I don't know where, that, where that comes from. I'm quite quite the anomaly for that. Um, and that, that was it, really. There was always something there that I, I, I liked something to do with music. And when I had the outlet, which is with computers, uh, when I could actually start making noises myself, then that's really when it started. So you really never composed on paper. You were You jumped right into the digital age immediately. Absolutely, yeah, pretty much. Well, almost. Uh, I always had a problem with reading music. Mm -hmm. uh, at, at school, we, we did music at school, and um, during assembly in the morning where everyone's 
gets together in the hall, uh, there would be music played and people would, and we'd sing stuff and there'd be three, three pupils on recorders and, and the uh, teacher would have the guitar. And what would happen is you, you, everybody would learn the recorder mm-hmm. uh, in one year and then the best of those players would then get to learn another instrument, some other orchestral instrument, and also be asked if they wanted to play in assemblies uh, doing the recorder. Mm-hmm. And I was one of those people that got asked because I was quite good at the recorder. However, I was only good because I sort of cheated <laughs> because when we started to learn, we had these books where you would learn the notes based on the color of the notes. So for example, a C would be red and a D would be green. Mm-hmm. And then towards the end of the book, it slowly removed the colors, just leaving black. And that's when I sort of got a bit stuck because I'd learned everything by the colors. I'd mm. no about, about the actual stave. So when they asked me if I wanted to play, I, I was totally out of depth because I couldn't actually read music. <laughs> I could only read the music colors. Uh, so I, even from there, I, I didn't have a, a, a way to go and read music from that point on. It, it was really a computer thing. I've got a very programmery type mind, so computers and sticking notes into a graphical display made far more sense to me. It's so interesting how that gave you an outlet. Um, I come from a classically trained background myself. I, I'm, I'm a middle school band director, and oh. um, and I I think it's it's so fascinating that that someone who had sort of the difficulties that you had with reading notation on the staff, uh, mm-hmm. you know, whenever you were whenever you could see it sort of gridded out like it is in a tracker, it made a lot more sense, and you could sort of organize your ideas in that way. And it makes me think about you know how many kids today might be better served to say, hey, this isn't working out for you in this sort of traditional manner, but here's another way of approaching it. And uh, that's really that's really made me think about how I how I do my own lessons. I would certainly think there's a lot of people who are, who are just like me. There's there's certain things which, which you just get, and certain things that you don't. Mm-hmm. And yeah, for me, seeing it in blocks made much more sense to me than seeing it as, as uh, notes in notation form. Yeah. Um, so it, it's, it, certainly there, there'll be thousands of others just like me who would prefer to do it that way and probably get up and running to speed more quickly doing it that way as well. Yeah, yeah, that's that's super great. Um, when you were playing games on the C64 as a lad, uh, did you ever think about, you know, you were playing a game and you were really into it, but you didn't like the music, and did you ever think, well, I can do it better than this? Not at that point, no. That wasn't until the Amiga. Okay. Uh, when, I, when, I, when I got the Amiga, it was ProTrack. Well, it wasn't ProTrack at the time. It was Soundtrack at the time, the first one. Uh, I, I used to, basically, when I got Soundtracker, I almost stopped playing games, and the only thing I did was go home and write music using Soundtracker. And it got to a point where, when I'd done enough of them over probably six to eight months, something like that, I got up to about, I'd, I'd done about 60 or so. It was at that point where I'd play games. And that's when I think I can do better than that. Mm. And that, that really was, was the turning point. Mm-hmm. But on the Commodore 64, you, you had to be able to program, to be able to program your own play routine. So I knew there was not really any chance that I'd, I'd be able to compete with that. Yeah, I'm coming from the, from the States where we were, you know, almost exclusively, uh, you know, in my area, console people, you know, and we had computers for word processing and stuff like that. I never really considered the the way that, that music was written for, for games. Uh, and so you're saying that the C64 didn't, you weren't able to use a tracker like you could with the Amiga. That functionality wasn't in the system. There were a few things available, but... Um you wouldn't really be able to use them in a game. 
So uh, let's see what were the there was I, I know Ubix Music was was one which is quite good. That's quite late on. Electrosound that was another one. Mm-hmm. But you could compose with them and you could make music with them, but you couldn't export it in a way you could then play that in a game. I see. I so see. They were pretty self-contained. If you wanted to do that, you would have had to be able to write in uh, 6502 assembler and understand how the SID works and so on, and do it yourself. So the, the Amiga was really a watershed moment for, for so many reasons, but especially in music, because for the first time, you could have somebody that wasn't necessarily a programmer uh, writing music for all kinds of different applications. Well, it's not to say there weren't some editors that were made on the on the C64, but even so, don't forget that the, the, the distribution mechanisms were not like they are now. Mm-hmm. So even ones that might have existed, that would have been very, very hard to even get hold of them because you have to get hold of them through people and through the post. Yeah. So you have to mail to people. And that it's very difficult. Or you would have been able to afford a uh, modem and a bulletin board. And in the UK, the phone service was unbelievably expensive in the 80s. Mm. It's not like in the US where you get free local calls. Mm-hmm. No, you, your calls are like five, 10 pence a minute. Wow. Even for a local. Oh my gosh! So th- there was very little possibility of that being the case. Certainly for me, growing up here. I mean, yeah, if if we were, if we were a rich family, then maybe that would have been different. But even so, it it wasn't it wasn't possible for me to to go and connect to a bulletin board in Denmark and download a load of tools that might have been available, uh, that might have allowed me to do something like that. I had no idea. <laughs> so in, in the, I'm I'm sorry to interrupt you, but in, in England in the in the 80s, you were charged by the minute for local calls. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, the only place that didn't do that was in Hull because they had their own phone system, uh, Kingston upon Hull. And uh, yeah, I was very jealous of those having, they had local calls, but mm-hmm. still any other calls outside that local area is still very expensive. Yeah, so the BBS scene in general must not have been as big there as it is here just from the, an expense perspective. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, of course, yeah. Yeah, yeah there's definitely a, a massive barrier to entry to be, being able to connect to those things. Yeah. And you'd have to restrict your time to... a pretty short period of time because the longer you the more you want to download the vastly more expensive it is oh yeah can run yeah so how old were you when you got an amiga um i'm not sure when did the amiga 500 come out uh, i think 89 87? 87 yeah 87 or 88 mm-hmm. uh because i got the, the the 500 relatively early after it came out i think because i had a 1.2 machine so it was one of the one of the early ones mm-hmm. uh so it probably would have been 1987, so it would have been, how old am I now? Uh, when was I born? <laughs> it would have been about, uh, that doesn't sound right though. That doesn't sound like the right age. It would, would have been like 13. But I'm pretty sure I had an Amiga before that. So it, maybe it was Christmas at the end of 1986. I, I don't know. It was around that time. I, I remember being in the second year at school, so I must have been about 12. Okay. Yeah, I'm almost certain the 500 didn't come out before 87. But uh, yeah, it it must have been then. Then it must have been eighty-seven. Uh, but it, yeah, it hadn't been out long when I got it because what I'd done is I'd sold all of my Commodore sixty-four stuff. Mm-hmm. I gave the money to mum and dad so that they could get me a an Amiga for Christmas. So you were really pinning all your hopes and dreams on this machine. <laughs> well, well, it was the obvious thing to get. That's what if you had a Commodore sixty-four, you had to get an Amiga. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was the next logical step, and. Everything you see in the magazines was just unbelievable compared to what you'd seen on the Commodore 64. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, how to get one, there was no question of that. Now, it, Obviously, I didn't really think of it as, oh, I'm going to get an Amiga because that will be my creative outlet. No, I was thinking that 
I will be able to play better games. <laughs> right. Uh, that was all. <laughs> and how did you stumble upon the whole tracker piece of software? That was from a computer club I went to. Mm -hmm. As as I mentioned about the distribution, distribution was always a problem. So the only way you'd get new stuff is through people, generally. And through those people, one of them might have had a bulletin board, and they might have been able to download stuff. Uh, and I went, used to go to a computer club every every Wednesday, and uh, it was just a copy party basically. There was just <laughs> X copy on it. Mm -hmm. The organisers hated it because they they were potentially going to get in trouble because of that. And every week they came around moaning saying we shouldn't be doing all that. <laughs> but anyway, we, everyone had just copied whatever anybody else had brought, and I was no different. And I'd just copy a bunch of stuff, and then when I'd get home, I'd see what I've got essentially. And one of those was uh, Ultimate Sound Tracker. And it's very, it's quite cryptic if you try and use it now, even loading in, uh, well, there's no such thing as a module. You can't just load a module in. You have to load in the song data, and then it'll ask you to load in the, uh, the, the, the samples from whichever sample disk you've got. And to load in one of the songs, you have to know the name of the song on the disk. Mm. And the Amiga is very easy to get directory listings without swapping mm. and so on. Yeah. But anyway, I, I managed to work it out. And I managed to load it in and realize it was a music program. And the whole tracking concept just worked for me. So it, it seemed really obvious what you had to do to make it make noises. And so that was the point when I just mostly spent my time doing that. Yeah, so you, you spend six to eight months and you, you amass this catalog of, of music that you've, you've created. How did you make the jump over to sending these things out you know, for publication or inclusion in games and things? How did that whole thing get started? Purely because of that computer club. That's all it was. When I, when I was confident enough with it, as I say, when I got to that tipping point where I thought I can do better than that, I, I would made some music compilations on a disc and I'd give those out at the computer club because obviously everybody copies everything. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and one of the guys there knew somebody who ran a local development company uh, that wasn't far, just a few miles down the road. And he got my details somehow and phoned up and asked me to do some music for their game. So I did. Is there uh, an online record of any of these early, early tracks that y you know you've created? No, but I do have them all. <laughs> I was just curious because I'm sure that a lot of people who are you know fans of your later work would love to go back and, and see you know an anthology of all your early stuff. Go back and see how bad they are. <laughs> no, of course not. I think I've got all of them apart from the first four. Mm -hmm. I think they start from Mike's five and. It is interesting. It's interesting for me, anyway, to to go and go through them because if you go through them chronologically, you can you can see how I'm learning how to write music. Mm -hmm. So it's quite interesting from that perspective. It's it's really bad, and then you can you can see certain ones are quite experimental. And what happens if I do octaves here? And what if I only do a note every every three steps, and so on? And you can see how that transitions to being more and more like a, a proper finished track, basically. Uh, and yeah, when it gets up to sort of 50, then they start to get all right. And after that, then they start to sound like proper game-like Amiga modules, really. Mm -hmm. uh, whether I make those available, I don't know. Okay, okay, maybe. <laughs> one, of the, one of the barriers is because they're all done with original old sound tracker and, and noise tracker and so on, they're not modules. I, I have to convert them all to module format because they're all still just song data with a separate massive big, well, not not that big for these days, but... 25 meg folder of all of my 8-bit samples from all the soundtracker discs. Right. So it's a bit of a job to go through and convert them all. Mm. Uh, 
uh, maybe I will. <laughs> did you give? Um, did you always title your works after after you finished, or did you did you do you write with like a working title in mind? No, no, all of those ones are just Mike song. Okay. Uh, number. Yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty much all of my. I, I don't really get a, a, a name for anything they'll do, uh, anything until it's it's done. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'll listen to it, and then a name will generally come to me, and that's that's how I title stuff. So tell me a little bit about the first time that you were um, you were commissioned to to write a piece for a game. Well, that was Last Ninja Two, uh, which is a big deal because being a big Commodore sixty four fan, Last Ninja Two was a major game. Mm -hmm. So being asked to do the music for that was was pretty shocking. I was only sixteen; I'd just turned sixteen. Uh, got a phone call, and l as luck would have it, we had a half term holiday from school coming up. So during that week, I went to their offices and I did the conversions of their of the Commodore 64 stuff to the Amiga. So it was it was a pretty major deal. Yeah, I mean that that was uh, I had no idea that company existed. So even just finding out that there was somebody right there was was very surprising to me. Um, and I got I, I did a few other games for those as well over the over the that period of a few months. Some Disney games that they were doing conversions of um, that Codemasters game that I did. Uh, called Little Puff. Um, I think that's that's about it. There, there wasn't too much that I did. Last Ninja Two was the the major thing that I did for them. And so in these conversions, you were taking music that was already existed, you know, on the, that was coming out, and you were basically transcribing it through a tracker for the Amiga version. Yeah, yeah. I just had a tape recorder with a cassette of the uh, Commodore sixty four tunes, and I'd just play that and over and over again. It. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, play, rewind, play, rewind, play, rewind. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, th through that, through that experience, were you making, you know, connections at all these different companies? And how did you introduce the fact that you were also a writer, you know? Uh, well, I didn't, I didn't meet anybody. I didn't really know anybody. The only people I knew were from the computer club. Okay, okay. Worked out quite well for me. Even, even from that company, um, I, I never got introduced to anybody else. You mm. know, I'd meet the programmers, and and that was it, really. Uh, it was only because of a, a another friend at the computer club. He got a job at Psygnosis, and I was doing some stuff with him. We were doing a, a like a dungeon master type game, and I was doing the audio for that. And so he was there at Psygnosis and basically looking out for me. So when new games come in, if they seemed appropriate, then he'd offer my services and that's what he did and that's uh, how I got to do Bill's Tomato game. Oh, okay. So that was the closest game I did. Okay. So I did that when I was freelance. I wasn't actually working full time there mm. when I got to do that. How common was it, um, you know, in the in the industry at that time, at least through your, your perspective, how many people were actually on the company payroll versus freelancing? Uh, at Psygnosis, you mean? Yeah. When I joined, oh God, I think there was about 40 people, something like that. Um, because Psygnosis was a, it was a quite an unusual place as far as a publisher goes, because it was a publisher developer, but not really developing games completely in-house. It was more a provised, how can you explain it? Essentially, a programmer would come to us and say, I've got this game or this game idea, and here's the demo. And it could very well just be a single program. Bill's Tomato Game is a perfect example. That was Bill Pullen. He just did this little demo that he brought in, and uh, everybody liked it. And so that got taken on. And 
work was farmed through Signosis to me and uh, uh, internal artists were used for all the artwork. And that was very common that the art would be done inside in Signosis. The programming would be done by whatever programmer was coming up with the game. Um, so in terms of the, the split between external and internal, I'd say there's about 43 people. And that was a lot. There was marketing and, and we had a bunch of testers and, and artists and a lot of administrative stuff um, because the company was was reasonably well sized at the time because it had been pretty successful. Well, <laughs> I joined after Lemmings came out, so yeah, it had <laughs> blown up already. Yeah, exactly. Um, and externally, it's hard to say. It, it really depends on how many games we had in development. And there was quite a lot of the time. We when I joined, there was, I mean, 1993. I joined in 92, and throughout 93, there was just so many games. There was, uh, I don't know, 20, 20 or so, 30 games released. It was, it was mad. Yeah. So there was quite a lot of external people, but they were treated very well by Signosis. That was one of the managing directors' big, big things. It was always treat the developers well, and they'll do good games for us. So if somebody was sent over something that was really good, you know, Signosis would pay to fly them over, put them up in a hotel in Liverpool, and then they'd bring them in, talk about design ideas and so on. And then uh, they'd go away, come back with some other proposal, and then that would hopefully be signed, and then development would carry on from there. But as I say, yeah, developers are always treated very well because they were really the seen as the, as the, the golden gooses, if you will. Without them, there'd be no games. How many composers were on were on staff, or not really on staff, but how many composers was Signosis using? You know, obviously, twenty games in a year—that's that's a lot of music that needs to be written. Uh, let's see. Around well, when I joined, um, I didn't join in audio. My my plan was just to get any job I could mm -hmm. and then be there so that I can do the audio. Yeah, <laughs> and that that worked out in the end. Uh, but. I think there was only, when I joined, there weren't that many people being used for music. There were certainly some uh, developers that had people they'd like to use. Mm -hmm. um, Lemmings, for example, the music was done by Brian Johnson, who was Scott Johnson's brother, one of the programmers. Um, Tim Wright uh, also did Lemmings, and he did some other games uh, for Signosis, Beast 2, uh, awesome. And he... He had come about through a demo group that had taken a demo to um, to Signosis, and basically the artist got hired internally. Tim got used uh, externally for certain projects, and Tim ended up becoming a full-time employee as well at, at, at some point. Um, I know Chris Hillsbeck was used for one of the games before that, um, but after I probably been I don't know six or seven months, something like that, it was. I was doing a lot more audio. So I was doing bits and pieces for games while I was just doing my general job, which is game evaluator. And then when the workload got too much, then I got palmed off to the secondary office, and that's when I was doing full-time audio then. Oh, from then on. okay, I see. So it was only me. I mean, that, that, I was the only employee doing doing audio. It was uh, various freelancers that would, that would come and go. You know, back then, if you sort of made a name for yourself, like somebody like Alistair Bremble or Chris Huselbeck, um, do, you, do you think that those guys... Could you make more money being a freelancer and just taking work from anybody as it came in, or were you better off, you know, sort of hitching your wagon to a big development house like Signosis? Mm. That that that's a very. It depends on the time period you're talking about and and the type of character. Um, 
Alistair did very, very well at freelance. Alistair wouldn't have, he wouldn't have made as much money if he'd been in-house, let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. He did loads and loads of games and he did them very, very well. Mm-hmm. He got the name for himself and you know, he, he charged what he was worth. Um, however, th- there's, a, there's a thing about working in-house where over the long term, it can be very, very beneficial because of all the people that you're surrounded by every day. Now, especially at the start of the, the game industry when everybody was young, all of those young people that you work with day in, day out eventually go off and they form their own companies or they end up working, being high up at EA or, or things like that. And you you know these people because you work with them for years. So in terms of context, having an in-house job is quite different from being a freelancer because you get to know people a lot better. Um, so it could be that a producer five years down the line needs some audio for their game and they think of you first because they know you better than anybody else. Yeah, so maybe maybe you're taken in a little bit less, but your long-term prospects are much better. Potentially, mm-hmm. but again, it depends on the type of person because a lot of people who were freelance back then have gone on to much greater heights now, uh, you know, earning vast amounts of money being, being freelance today. Uh, but I was at GDC one year and uh, I asked this question. There was a, an audio composers panel and I, I basically knew what the answer was going to be. So, and the question I asked was, how much of the work you get today uh, comes directly or indirectly from the people you worked with when you worked in-house? And they'd never had that question before. And there were four of them. And they were all like, and all of them answered probably about 90% of the work. Wow. Yeah. It's all about networking, you know. Yeah, it is. It really is, yeah. So it can it can go both ways. Mm-hmm. It can be beneficial being in-house. It can be beneficial being freelance. It depends on the type of character. But I would say that it's you get a better network uh, for future reference if you've worked in-house somewhere. How many composers from the time period, you know, we're talking about the early to mid-90s and the 16-bit era, how many composers also did audio design, you know, sound effects and things like that versus how many were strictly only music? Oh, everybody. <laughs> really? Everybody. Oh, yeah, 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 of course, yeah. Because um, it was it was an audio guy. That's that's how it worked. Um, I, I, I'm, I know that uh, there would have been instances where there might have been one or two people and maybe the, the, the tasks would be split between sound effects and music. But that doesn't mean to say that either of those two people were specialists in that. It's just the way the work had been divided up. Mm. So... You didn't really have a choice at the time. You had to be able to do everything. If, if you could program, that was even better. Yeah, it's a triple threat then. <laughs> well, I learned to program basically because of that, because there was a game I was doing that I did sound effects for, and they asked me how to play them back. Mm-hmm. I said, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> give me a minute. And because of that, I went away and learned how to program, essentially, so I could give them a player that they could play their sound effects with. Oh, okay. What game was it? Do you remember? It wasn't released. It was called Operation G2. Oh, okay. Ended up getting... There was a demo released of it on Amiga format, so there is a demo floating around. But uh, at the end of the day, the game was killed. I'm not sure why. <laughs> Did you ever resent the fact that your talents were being wasted making, like, gunfire sounds and things like that? No. No. A- anything to do with audio, it's all, it's all good stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's a different skill set. Anything... Um, if you've just done music all your life, and then you get to go and record stuff. Even even not just recording stuff. There's a there's a, a sense of achievement in doing what we used to do and 
connecting your video up to your sampler and recording sound effects from films and making sure. them sound correct and getting them into one and a half K. There's a certain sense of achievement in that. So it's all good. Uh, as I say, anything to do with audio. Did you ever do uh, did you ever do any of your own Foley work? Yeah. Uh, in fact, um, well, it can't really be classed as Foley, but the as far as I know, the very first CD recorded crowd uh, implementation was one I did. Wow. For Sensible Soccer on the Mega CD, huh. where I, I went to the local football ground. Uh, we got in touch with them, and I got a photographer's pass so I could go on the pitch mm -hmm. and record the crowd. So that, uh, in theory, I think is the very first instance of that. That's pretty so, cool. Yeah. That's pretty cool. <laughs> I had a little portable DAT recorder that I'd go out and, uh, and record with. Mm -hmm. um, so what were you listening at all to? Um, well, first of all, what were you listening to? You know, just I'm not talking about video game music. I'm just talking about in general, you know, during sort of this time period. What stuff were you listening to? Uh, mostly Faith No More. Okay. That's funny. I just watched, you know, Mr. Bungle just played their first show in 20 years, uh, two days ago, and I was watching it last night on YouTube. Where was this? It was at, oh, geez, it was, I want to say it was somewhere in LA. He was wearing a Kobe Bryant jersey, but yeah, they, they reunited first time in 20 years, two uh, days ago. They were convinced that that was never going to happen again. Yeah. That, that, that gives hope for another tour. That'd be good. It's hard to believe. I've seen them once. Oh really? Uh, I I would have seen them again, except I was so ill. I, I had to I had to I had to jib it. I had to not go, and I was so disappointed. Um, yeah, and it was amazing. It it because it was after Disco Volante, the second album, mm -hmm. and it's quite a weird album. It's their fa it's my favorite it, one. It's the best thing I've, I think they've ever done. It, it if you if you read it if you listen to it while you're looking at the the inlay on the CD, everything makes sense. Yeah, because everything tells a story. It's it's fantastic, but they played all of the shall we say, the most unlistenable ones first. Oh, yeah. And so they, they, they cleared the room. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. 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 20 minutes, it was half the people there left. Mm -hmm. they, you know, it, not to get off subject, but it's so funny how they can they can do stuff that's just so, it's so beautiful, you know, it's so lyrical, and then they can just turn around and do the hardest, you know, metal, whatever. Really? Yeah, it's, it's an amazing collection of ideas mm -hmm. that they put together into some semblance of a story. And when you understand what the story is, you can see what, what the genius is behind the way they do it. And they're all unbelievably good musicians. Yeah. Unbelievable. Technical chops. Unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I couldn't believe how it sounded when I saw them live. Honestly, I thought there was no way they can re recreate it. Right, because it's, it's not like they've got a 20-piece band. I mean, it's your basic rock outfit, you know. Yeah, and it sounded almost exactly the same as the album. It was, it was amazing. Yeah, well, yeah, brilliant album. So anyway, Faith No More. Yeah. You listening to them? Um, were you listening to any other? Um, are you one of these people that do you like to listen to sort of what your contemporaries are doing for ideas, or do you shut them out on purpose so you don't accidentally copy anything? Or no, I, I, I just listen to what I want really. Mm -hmm. um, I don't deliberately find influences anywhere it happens it, well, if, if ever i'm asked what are my influences usually my answer is whatever i listen to last that's what it is I, I i don't really for example i'd never write a song and think i want it to sound like a faith no more song mm -hmm. because that's i'll just do whatever i want to do at, at that point in time and one of the things about doing games is that the diversity of music that you have to create means that you are very very flexible in terms of the music you you can create. So one of the problems that leads to is that if I just decide today that I'm going to write a piece of music, 
it can be literally anything. It might be that I want to do something for a swing band or I might want to do some really hard, hardcore techno or do some dubstep or maybe I'll do an orchestral piece. It, it, it is a little bit of a problem. It's like when you, you go from having one synthesizer to having 50 synthesizers or having every VST that you can download. There's suddenly a world of possibility and you don't really know where to start. And that, that has sometimes been a problem for me because it, the amount of different styles I've done in games means that I can write in any style. So when I choose to do one myself, where do I start? I don't really know. So as far as influences go, they creep in, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't consciously try to, uh, to to go for a certain sound that somebody's done or or try to make something that's like somebody else. So listening to, to contemporaries is not really, not really a big deal for me. I like to hear what other people are doing. Mm-hmm. I like to be impressed by certain things um but i wouldn't say that they they influenced me in any particular way no more than anything else were you uh you know in in say 92 93 were you aware of the console scene at all i mean were you were you playing stuff like sonic the hedgehog or were you totally sort of ensconced in the computer world at that time uh well around around that time was when consoles start to encroach on the computer sales in the UK. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it was just to do with stagnation because uh, the Amiga had, had been going for so long and hadn't been updated. When the Amiga 1200 came out, obviously there was a there was a boost there for, for the Amiga, but then the SNES and the Mega Drive started to take hold. Yeah. And some of my friends had got a Mega Drive. One of them got both a Mega Drive and a SNES mm-hmm. and they had an Amiga. And of course, working for Cygnosis, we had to start supporting everything. So I had access to everything that was, that was around then. So, yeah, I'd play Sonic and what, what are the other good, the Shinobi, Streets of Rage. Right. All of, I, you know, I, I, I sort of consider the music from Sonic the Hedgehog to be, in, personally, I think that it's sort of a turning point in video game music. I mean, it sounds so much different to my ears to anything that came before it. And I don't know if it's something to do with the, the FM synthesizer chip that's on the, on the Mega Drive or if it's just the way that the piece is written. But, I mean, is there... Do you sort of see epics in video game music? I mean, are there are there games like that for you when you heard it? Where like, wow, this is really next level stuff. Um, next level stuff. There's stuff I've been impressed with. Mm-hmm. However, it's difficult for me to 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 come up with anything where I'd say, right, that that's that's new. That's a new thing. Um, so, for example, even even FM. Um, yes, the Mega Drive had an FM chip, and so it sounded like FM. But then arcade machines had been using FM chips sure. for years before that. Yeah. So there's nothing tonally that I'd hear that go, "Wow, that's that's not like anything I've heard before." Um, the SNES was just samples, so that's it's just samples. Mm-hmm. It's like it was like with more channels. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think of something that was that was really because after that point things went on to CD, so you could do anything with that, mm-hmm. and. See, PC PC audio was always awful. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a wavetable. Uh, yeah, it's just ah, oh, it got so locked around general MIDI, which was a terrible, terrible standard, and it was all over the place because of the nobody really, nobody really took standards of of um, amplitude level for their samples. So different cards would have wildly different mm-hmm. mixes, and it was, it was all a bit of a mess. Um, so really, in into the CD era. 
I think there are certain games where the application of music to games was very unique, and they did new things. I know Halo, uh, what Marty O'Donnell did, that that was brilliant what he did with, with Halo. Um, because even though interactivity had been done before, he really went to town on it with a proper fully recorded orchestra, and he spent a lot of time splitting that up into blocks and getting the transitions right and everything. And so that was new. That That, that really... It's not that it hadn't been done before, it just hadn't been done that well before. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say uh, in terms of presentation and sonically, for me, Mirror's Edge is is a big deal. Mirror's Edge was like nothing I'd, I'd heard before. Just the, the the whole ethos of it and the, the atmosphere is just, it's totally unique. And even just that first moment when the intro comes on, just sonically, I remember thinking at the time that I was so bored with music, uh, speaking generally of, of pop music mm-hmm. and, and what else was it was available that when when that game started to me i thought that right that's it this this proves that games musically are far more innovative than anything outside of games can be films are stuck doing orchestras pop music was stuck just recycling the same thing over and over again Mm -hmm. and this was something that was new and it fit perfectly so yeah mirror's edge was one um but yeah, it's difficult to to think of stuff that that really made me go, "Wow, that's 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 new and new and different." Because everything's sort of evolutionary. Yeah, it's a so, gradual change a lot of the time. Yeah, um, that's so. that's really interesting. I'm gonna have to check out the Mirror's Edge uh, soundtrack because I've I've never I haven't played that one, and uh, uh, I will I will endeavor to to check it out if it really impressed you that much. That's incredible. Yeah, it, it's it's the whole thing. Everything, even the the sound design on it, is one of the best things I've ever heard. Mm-hmm. It's it's absolutely outstanding. Uh, and again, it's it's a presentation issue. Everything comes together just right, mm-hmm. and that's what wowed me with that. Very good. Did you feel a little bit sad as uh, you know when this this sea change in recording happened with the switch to CD, and you no longer were composing with a tracker anymore? Did you feel just a little bit of remorse as you should have put that on the shelf? No, couldn't wait. <laughs> 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 I, th- I think that's a, it's a. I think it's hard for people to understand that, but at the time, um, everything that we had at that moment was awful. So whatever was the best that we could do was never enough, mm. and that was always the case. No matter what it was, whatever we were working on, if there was a limitation, we wanted that limitation to be removed. So when people talk about chip tunes today. Um, it's it's a strange thing for me because I was there doing it at the time mm-hmm. and it was pretty awful. We didn't want it to sound that way, but we had no choice. So we we made the best of what we could to make it sound at the very least reasonable. And of course, there, are, there there's some amazing stuff that came out of that period, uh, as long as you understand the, the constraints and the expectations of what you're going to hear because of the sound chip that's being played on. But at the time... We didn't want to do that. Loads of people do chip tunes now because they want that and they want that sound. But we just wanted that to go away so we could do some better sounding stuff. But I didn't want four channels on the Amiga. I, w- I wanted infinity channels and infinity memory because I wanted to do the music that I really heard in my head. I didn't want to have to cut it down to, to fit. Um, so every time that that happened, it was it was beneficial. Mm-hmm. Uh, few more channels like going from the amiga and doing uh, i did stuff on the mega cd using the sound chip and that was eight channels but it was just like doing an amiga and i had a pro tracker player written by one of the 
uh, one of the programmers. So it was still using the Amiga, but I had eight channels now. On the Super Nintendo, same thing. It was like ProTracker, but eight channels, so it was a bit better. And if you used a bit of memory and kept your sample size down, you might get a bit of echo reverb on there. And then it was a pretty sharp, steep cliff to go in. Right, now it's CD audio. Now you've got to compete with contemporary music. Yeah. So that that was a, a difficult thing. And I think that when that happened, a vast majority of computer music, of game musicians that were working at the time, produced music that was just categorically awful. It was just bad. Mm-hmm. If you listen to the stuff around that time, it I, I don't think it's really a nice thing to say, but I do think that most people were stuck in those limitations and worked with them and the expectations are that you can you can do a, a track and it might sound a bit rubbish compared to whatever the latest release was in the charts, but the expectation was that it would sound that rubbish. And when that expectation drops, then you're left with this vast chasm between what you've been doing and what you, what you need to do. And I think in that period of time, there, there was a lot of people who were lost and were totally out of their depth. Even if you listen to the production of CD tracks at the time, it's just a wash with reverb. It's terribly mm-hmm. mixed. It's like it's people just, people were learning how to be engineers all over again. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, it was, and they they hadn't had to before because it was such a sharp transition period. You didn't just do a little bit of CD music. It was it was like right, you've got eight channels, and now you're doing Infinity, mm-hmm. and you're gonna buy a whole load of new gear, and you'll need new music software, and and it was. It was difficult. It really was. Were there people um, that were unable to make that transition? You know, did people lose out? Because once you can do, like you said, anything on CD, why don't you hire this guy to do your music that is a real composer, not just a tracker guy, you know? Well, that already happened. Uh, when we were doing, let's see, that would have been in 1993. When we did Microcosm for the FM Towns, that was really the first CD-based machine. Um and as far as I'm aware, we, we'd been essentially asked to do stuff, and we were paid by Fujitsu to, to support their machine. Um, but we, we did versions of Shadow the Beast, and uh, what was the other game we did? There was another big game that we did and converted to the FM Towns. I can't remember which one it was now. But for both of those titles, uh, the producer went to an established composition studio so that wasn't anything to do with game musicians because they knew full well that game musicians just didn't even have the gear to be able to do anything right close to, to what the expectations were yeah even just the so, equipment it's not like a lot of these guys had the, yeah that that i never yeah. thought about that but mm-hmm. if you were yeah um you were sort of left in the lurch if you were a composer and you were just used to working with your keyboard and that was it and now you have to invest tens of thousands of dollars and all this equipment and stuff that's right yeah yeah you need more keyboards and yeah you computer you have to buy the software you're gonna to have to get a mixer you have to get a new amp new speakers all of that wow uh, you're not just playing out of a television anymore and that's good enough no you know you have to do it properly now so as very very early on uh, they went to uh established studio musicians to get that done now being um, being in hope. being in in house uh being in house at psygnosis at that time did that work in your favor where you're like hey the transition is happening can you get me the stuff that i need were they were they helping you out <laughs> no no <laughs> <laughs> uh myself and tim right uh we had to bring in our own music oh. gear to do this stuff they wouldn't buy us any um it was it was a strange time that whole transition period. It was it was not not a very nice period 
to to probably to be working anywhere in the game industry to be honest because everybody was going through the same problems games were getting bigger nobody had a clue how to manage it because it had never been done before if you've just been doing games that need a maximum of five people now you need 25 people that's a big management issue mm -hmm. games are bigger you need more money you need more time you need more more equipment so yeah it was a problem everywhere and that transition period was was difficult um and for us i think the company was so busy doing everything else that it was incredibly difficult for us to put forward a case why we needed them to buy us stuff as well because no artists have to do stuff because well one of the things about art is that you can't put the, a screenshot of the music in a magazine mm -hmm. so art generally gets all of the budget right <laughs> yeah because they're the, the thing that sells it initially to the consumer mm -hmm. it's less so because of the internet and being able to go on youtube and see the game properly and so on but certainly back then art, art was king so most of the budget went on that and obviously programming because you can't have a game without programming so audio was pretty much left in the cold and left to the last minute and not really supported very well so myself and tim brought in our keyboards i had um, i had a few things then i, I had a, a corgo one wfd uh which 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 i was on higher purchase and took me two years to pay for oh wow <laughs> <laughs> I had a Roland SH-101, I had a Casio SH, a CZ-101, um, I can't remember what else, some of the little bits and pieces and so on. Uh, Tim had a Kawai K1, um, some effects units, some other little synthesizer, and uh, he uh, he and I both had all of that stolen because there was a break-in at the office and everything went. Oh my gosh. So at that point, then that's when we could go to them and say, Right, all of our gears got stolen, and you're going to have to pay for it. To which, of course, they asked the question, "Well, why did you have your own gear in the office?" And the answer was, "Because you wouldn't buy any." <laughs> so, you you, were you able to pay that off a little early, thanks to the uh, the insurance payout? Oh no, I'd, I'd, I'd already oh, paid okay. for that by then. Okay, <laughs> no free lunch. I have a question. Well, the, the, sorry, the Roland SH101. I bought that for twenty twenty pounds. <laughs> and then in the time that I'd bought it, uh, the, the TB303 and analog and acid house and everything mm -hmm. had, had started to really go to town. And so they had to pay me about 300 for that. Oh, just because it... <laughs> so you did reap the benefits. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, when you play... I play a lot of cross-platform stuff where I'll play the Amiga version and then I'll play the Mega Drive version. And it seems like... is it Was there a directive from... Um, management saying when you do the console port it must have background music or was it the other way around where you did the console port with the background music and you dropped it on the Amiga just because you didn't have enough channels um, I can't really think of any case where it would be in question whether there was going to be music or not mm -hmm. if, if there was a port from a console and it had music well the Amiga one had to have music as well I can't really think of any games that didn't actually have music that we did uh, um, even if you'd switch between music and sound effects. Uh, so uh, the one that I'm thinking of, we just reviewed this game on the show, is Dune 2, um, which uh, the, the the Mega Drive version of Dune 2 has this rock and background track, and on the Amiga, there's there's nothing but sound effects. Right, okay. Well, that's a decision down to, or is it Westwood Associates? Yeah, Westwood, yeah. Um, I don't really know how they worked. It's quite possible that they farmed out to the for the Mega Drive competition and didn't have anybody that they knew that could do music on the Amiga because mm -hmm. it was a bit of a property over there, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, 
so yeah, I'm not sure how that would come about, but for me, yeah, there was not really any question of it. Okay. Uh, I did. There was a conversion was clearly going to have music. Mm -hmm. um, did you, uh, did you think, I mean, there are so many just Amiga games in general that just, the, you can either choose background, you know, sound effects or music um, yeah. versus again, you know, even on the earliest consoles like the NES or the, the Master System or whatever, it seemed like they were always able to get that to work where that you could have both. Um, what was the decision that was made and where was it made to where, you know, I know that you have to sacrifice channels whenever you have both. Um, but, you know, who made that call to say we're going to have either or both or neither? Well, generally, the, the program was effectively completely in charge of whatever game they were doing. Okay. Input and some direction sometimes from us at Cygnosis. Uh, but generally, if, if they've decided they're going to have music and sound effects, then that, that's the way it was. For example, I had one game that I did where the, the programmer wanted to have two channels for sound effects. So I had to do all the music in two channels. Mm. There were two available. Uh, and that was just purely because that's what the programmer wanted. So that was generally the way it went. So Psygnosis didn't ever step in and say, hey, this thing is not going to sell unless it has this, this, and this. You need to add it in. That wasn't how Psygnosis usually worked. Not for audio. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm trying to think of any, any games that would really we need to have that. Um, I mean, you, you can put a case forward for something like, oh, no, more Lemmings which is Cygnosis saying, we want to release another Lemmings yeah. game. Let's do the same with more levels. Right, right. Uh, but in terms of the, the, the fundamental development of the game, especially with DMA design, for example, they were, they were pretty self-contained. They have a, most of the people they needed to, to finish it. So I think input was pretty loose uh, with regards to that. Um, but there was not really many, many, many things that were dictated by us at Cygnosis. Mm. Uh, if the game was good and... As I said before, because the developers were treated so well, the idea was if if the developer is making the game they want to make, it's probably going to turn out better. So they make the decisions that they wanted. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Um, as we wind down, uh, I, I read again online that you are involved with something called Game Coda. Oh, Game Coda. Yeah, oh, I was. Okay. Uh, when, it, when it was still around. Can you talk about that a little bit? Game Coder was audio middleware. It was one of the very early audio middlewares uh, created by a company called Sensora. And uh, I worked for Sensora for a few years. Sensora did 3D positional audio. And it, it grew from EMI research labs. So um, we used to work in the old EMI research building next to where the EMI archives are. Oh, wow. Beatles, I would kill to Beatles have that job. And yeah, 3D, 3D, 3DPA it was called, 3D Positional Audio. And we had licensed our technology to basically every sound card manufacturer apart from those made by Creative. So Game Coder was off the back of the hardware designs that we had. So it was a software implementation of the stuff we had in hardware on PC sound chips that was targeted toward games, towards games. So we had... Um, there was the, the, the render, obviously, we had 64 channels in, in 3D. And the 3D was amazing. It's much better than any of the new stuff that's coming out. Really? And this was 20 years ago, yeah. Um, and on top of that, there was another higher level layer, which had a bunch of sound tools, which was largely the stuff that I designed to do with playback and sound banks and being able to layer sounds and fade in and fade out and so on. Um, 
And yeah, we hawked that round for a few years and got some licenses for the games. And uh, eventually we got bought by Creative, funnily enough. So Creative then had the complete monopoly of the entire sound card industry. And uh, unfortunately, Creative didn't really know what to do with us because they were predominantly PC based. Mm -hmm. So when we come along with all of our console technology, they're like, don't don't know what to do. Uh, And they sort of had a go, but what we had competed with something that they were making internally, which was just PC only. And then there was this hack job of trying to use our underlying technology to get their PC tools to work on the Xbox, for example. And then eventually game coder was just sort of pushed under the carpet. Mm. And so I, so I left. <laughs> yeah. It's another example of an acquisition that just sort of quashed whatever innovation was going on in the space. It sounds yeah. like yeah. that's, that's what happened. Yeah. 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 Um, awesome. What are you What are you working on now? What are you doing these days? Uh, I still do music sound effects whenever they come about. Um, I don't really actively pursue it, but if somebody wants something doing, then uh, it's pretty easy for me to do whatever. Uh, I currently am working on audio middleware again for another audio middleware company, and I'm doing some audio techie stuff. I can't tell you what game okay. that's for. <laughs> uh, and it won't be out for a while. But yeah, I'm doing some lower level audio implementation work. What, uh, what was the last? I, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say about my other thing, which is the, my Commodore 64 SID emulation, which I've uh, I've been doing over the past five years. That's going to have, have a commercial release soon in the next few months, uh, which will be a it runs in the reactor player, so it acts just like a standalone VST. So you have my SID emulation in your VST. So I'd be very pleased when that comes out. That's awesome. That it's so cool that you're still involved in the retro scene in that way, you know, that you haven't left it all behind. No, well, it's where it came from. So it's never, never going to leave me. Yeah. <laughs> what was the last um, uh, commercially released game that you worked on that has come out? A game called House of Golf on the Nintendo Switch. Okay, House of Golf. But I wrote that. I did. I did the audio as well, but I programmed the game as well. So oh wow, was, that was a <laughs> self-contained thing. Um, before that, uh, I did a, some work on some um, prototype stuff for submissions, but that never got signed up. Um, and then before that, I, I worked for a company that I used to run with a friend of mine. So I was there for ten years doing all the. I was technical director there, but I did all the audio there as well. Mm. So we had all of our games. Um, and that's it. I'm not sure what uh, what lies in the future. We shall see. That's fantastic. <laughs> well, one more question and I'll get you out of here. What is the thing so far in your career, because your career is not even close to being over, what is your the thing you're so far you're most proud of so far in your career? Ooh, oh dear. That's not an easy question because I've done so many different things. Mm-hmm. There are certain bits of music I can point to and say, very pleased with that. Um, you can have more than certain... one answer. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, in terms of music, one of the things that I'm still very pleased with having done was the music on Formula One on the PlayStation. Because uh, it's a hard rock soundtrack and there weren't many around. There's still not that many, to be honest. And uh, I think it's very, very good. I was very, very pleased with how that turned out. Um, other stuff, uh, if you go back to the Amiga, um, quite pleased with how Globdule turned out. Mm-hmm. Because the, 
it's far too much music on that. Oh my god, I had to do about fifty pieces of music. Wow. And that that was that was quite interesting trying to squeeze the last bit of creative juice out of me for the last bits of music <laughs> for that. But I managed to get that done. Um other things that I'm quite pleased with. Uh, hard to say really. I mean as I say, I've done, I've done so much stuff. So getting getting projects done on time when I was doing project management work, that's always a good sense of achievement. Mm-hmm. Um, all the programming I've done, really, I, I'm glad to have had the opportunity to have stepped out of audio to do everything else because there were times at, at Cygnosis where I could program, but I couldn't program the PlayStation because I didn't know how all the dev tools and everything worked. But I'd be trying to explain the implementation I wanted to a programmer and they didn't get it. And that was frustrating. Mm-hmm. So I'm happy that I managed to break out of that to be able to essentially do everything myself. Um, that I've, I've done, you know, I've written game engines, I've written games, I've, I've done tools, I've, I've done a bit of everything really. So that, that really is a, it's, it's a big deal because it really opens the, the possibilities. If I wanted to completely stop audio, I've got other things I can fall back on. If I wanted to never program again, I can just do audio. So, that's 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 quite good and quite pleased that I got myself into that situation. Um, can't really think of any any other major major points really. Well, I'll go yeah, very happy with that. It's all just been such a weird roller coaster and and lots of different things for good for different reasons, bad for other reasons. Um, so yeah, not a particularly satisfactory answer. It's a nice little soundbite. <laughs> I, I I really like the music for Wiz and Liz. I think that that's your crowning achievement. <laughs> Didn't you, do... you say that? No, no, I'm being I... completely serious. I love the music for Wiz and Liz. Wasn't me. Oh no, no. <laughs> no I, I did the sound effects and wrote the sound effects driver for that. Well, cross that off the notes there. <laughs> the music on the Mega Drive was by Matt Furness. Okay. And then the Amiga version was done by Rick Eade. It was another employee. He worked in the Chester office. So yeah, sorry. Wiz and Liz was going to come out on the Super Nintendo, so I did start doing music for the Super Nintendo version of Wiz and Liz, but that got canned mm. and uh, not finished. Well, Mike, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, come on the Amigos interview today. Really appreciate it. And um, My do you have a uh, a anything to plug before you leave? I already plugged my... Just the, the SID, yep, the thing? Yeah, it's, okay. called, it's called Insidious. It's going to be released by Impact Soundworks, uh, the same people who make Super Audio Kart. So that'll be around uh, in a couple of months once I've finished. Well, I'm just doing final stuff with presets and doing some demos and things like that. But uh, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's the SID VSC I've always wanted. That's why I did it, because all the rest were just not good enough. So I wanted one for myself. Yeah. So yeah, that's it really. That's all I have to plug. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, th- thanks again. And uh, thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time on the Amigos interview.